Hi everyone, welcome to the Right Angle Podcast. This is the podcast that focuses on the process of design, where each episode I will highlight one exceptional creative individual with unique perspectives and experiences within the world of spatial design through actual conversations about their design principles, philosophy, and process. I want to discover what makes each designer, artillier, and artist unique. I'm your host, Al Liu, an interior designer in New York City. In the world that celebrates influencers, The Right Angle will be a podcast that celebrates real designers who makes the industry what it is, and for listeners to get a glimpse into the true creative mind. This week, I'm really excited to have Gregor Bujo and Fiona Sanipali, founding partners of Handwork Art and Design, as my guests. Handwork is a multi-discipline design practice that examines spatial habitation through art, context, nature, and applied curiosity. They value intimate and individual ideas over the mass-produced and conventional, and take pride in collaborating with clients to determine the best design solutions for their space. Prior to co-founding Handwork Art and Design, Fiona had over 10 years of experiences in hospitality design, including spending four years with Avarco as the lead art feature and concept designer. Some of her diverse portfolio includes the Julian Club in both New York City and Southampton, Casa Pichi in the Greenwich Village, and Beauty and Essex in the Lower East Side. Gregor, on the other hand, brings both theoretical and practical experiences from the field of fine arts, museology, and architecture to the firm. Aside from his design practice, Gregor is also passionate about teaching and supporting the next generation of designers. He was one of my studio professors and has been teaching at Pratt Institute for the past five years. I am really excited to catch up with both Gregor and Fiona today and discuss their design philosophies, approach, and processes, as well as what is it like to build a boutique design practice as a husband and wife team. Hi, Gregor and Fiona. Welcome to the Red Angle Podcast. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hi. Good afternoon. So I always start each episode with this big question. So, what's your practice's design philosophy? It's probably always changing a little bit, but if you if you get down to it, there are some things that every project、uh, it's always the same, and we always start with the client,、um, not just as you know the person or group that introduces and brings the project to us, but、uh, we just want to get to know them as people.、Um, we don't ever try to suppose that we know better than them what they need. We sort of just see ourselves as Uh, two designers that can somehow pull out pull out of them maybe what they what they're thinking or what they want.、Um, so we value the collaboration we have with our clients in every single project.、Uh, we love listening to them. We love talking to them.、Uh, we love visiting with them.、Um, in that way, we also don't ever suppose or think we know what the design is going to be. We always leave it very open ended,、um, and we always try to sort of figure out how we can not only satisfy what The owner、uh, wants or needs, but also how we can also introduce and layer in new things that maybe they weren't didn't even look for.、Um, we believe that the materials and the concept should always be apparent and easy to understand.、Um, you know, we don't we don't try to use a material to fake another material if we can hand if we can if we can do that.、Um, and we also think that details matter.、Um, the 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 larger 
concept, uh, the larger ideas, we think can, can be brought down into the level of detail. You know, just how two materials join one another. Um, so like a full saturation of whatever the, the design direction is. Yeah, I love that part of your design philosophies is just trying to know your clients better as people and really listen to their needs and wants before you start designing. So what makes you want to have that approach as you know part of your design philosophy? Well, the way that we were taught in school, um, the reason people approach designers and architects is because there's a problem that needs to be solved. And we're not gonna solve the problem unless we understand all the issues that need to be addressed. So we can make something look as beautiful as you want, but if it's not gonna address all the needs of people using it, then what's the point? Uh, and it's not just the client, it's the end user. Like the client may be an owner of a hotel or restaurant, um, but then the end user ends up being everyone from the chefs and servers to the customers. So after we've addressed all the issues and made sure everything's gonna work perfectly to turn it into either a beautiful home or a functioning business, then we go ahead and like impose our design aesthetic based on like, the styles and um, requests of the client, which is why a lot of the projects we do end up feeling and looking quite different from each other because we're not gonna like push it into a cookie cutter mold and come up with something that looks the same as the last one we did or do something just because it's a trendy design idea right now. So it's, it keeps things interesting for us as well to approach it that way. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, interior design is different than decorating and there is, you know, so much more than just making a space looks pretty. Um, and I think most of the time our job is actually problem solving and, you know, it could be spatial or programmatic especially when it comes down to hospitality and commercial projects. And I do want to tie back to sort of like what you said earlier about concept. So you mentioned that a design concept should be apparent and easy to understand. So could you explain to us a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, a, lot of, a lot of what we label or develop as concepts do go back to some sort of experience. Uh, the, the programmatic experience or intention of of the owner of the client. Um, so if we have uh, you know um, a client and we're working on their home, and they tell us that like it's very important that they have a space for entertaining because they have family come over all the time. You know that's going to be a, a major builder or, or driver uh, in the eventual you know design direction and concept. We need we need every space needs to accommodate more than one person or you know groups of people. Um, you know, it should be easily understood by looking at the space. We feel that you know this is a, this is a this is a room. This is a home that can can host. It can expand and host clearly, and we, they should be able to see how that happens. You know, there's room for the dining table, or the dining table is near the kitchen, or you know, there's some sort of adjacencies that like make sense towards that certain program. Um, so yeah, the the concept could be program driven so that it addresses like a way of living or it can be more like historical or aesthetic driven based on something like say a gentleman's lounge or um, a trip the client took to another country and we pull in cues from those kind of ideas and build them into the concept but it's almost always a combination of the two yeah i mean it's always shifting i think yeah 
Yeah, it sounds like a lot of your design concepts are experience driven, and each project is sort of like uniquely designed to address a specific needs or problem, rather than cookie cutter look, right? And by talking about sort of like your design philosophy and design approach, I do wondering the backgrounds you two had in design and if the experiences shapes the way you do design.、Um, so I studied architecture in Canada before I moved down to New York. So got a degree in architecture, and yeah, certainly the the way they teach you in design school completely shapes how you become a designer. And how you approach projects,、um, you're you're taught that, like we said earlier, like the designer is not the star. The main person in the job should be the client and the end user. So you're taught right off the bat in school to address it that way, and to do everything for a reason. So that kind of shapes how you how you like move forward in your career.、Um, so after school, I worked in Winnipeg for a few years designing restaurants just independently. Um, and that was really fun, but I got an opportunity to move to New York and work for Abroco, and I was pretty excited to get out of Winnipeg. So I I jumped on a plane and moved down here. Just opened my eyes completely to this whole other way of of designing. Like I understood the idea of a concept for a project, but I, the way that Abroco approaches it is a lot deeper and more layered, and you like really really dig into a concept and. That gets infused into almost every single detail that you、um, you apply. So that was a really exciting learning experience.、Um, after that, I worked briefly for Martin Berninski,、um, co-founded a hospitality firm called Dutch East Design, and was with them for a couple of years.、Uh, and then Greg and I took took on handwork.、Um, I guess I could mention that at Avroco, after being there for a couple of years. Just as like a regular interior designer, I became the lead concept and art feature director. So that was where my background started to become、uh, more focused on things like art installations, fabrication, designing stuff like that. Yeah, we you know we're both trained as architects.、Uh, we went to different schools, but、uh, I find there's some overlap in the philosophies、uh, that we both picked up at those schools.、Um, you know, we're we're absolutely not really driven by The look or style of a space or a design, but more about the full sensory experience. You know what a person does in the space, how they behave, and how we can craft that.、Um, you know, you can layer on top of that、uh, a, a material look and feel or style, but it really always comes down to you know delivering the, the, the volume, the space, the, the access points, and the light、uh, that that enable whatever the the, the user, or the owner is looking for.、Um, I went to school for for architecture. It took me two years to select a school because I wanted to get it right,、uh, and I I had many lists and went to visit many of them.、Um, my undergrad degree is in fine art, and then I I worked in museums. I have a a degree in museology. I worked in museums for about five or six years, but、um, at the same time I was I was a working artist. But I felt like it was a little too much about me,、uh, and I wanted. I just wanted my creative impulses and need to make things like to be applied towards something that I felt was larger,、uh, which is how I ended up in, in architecture.、Um, all of a sudden, it felt like you know I could I could sort of like apply my ideas, my my work, my 
curiosities, you know, towards something bigger, uh, you know, towards somebody else's you know, needs. And that sort of, I think, pointed me and straightened me up uh, in a good way. You know, all of a sudden I became very interested in what I was just doing creatively. Um, both of our both of our trainings were in architecture, but I think that we're both very interested in in the just the smaller, more intimate scale of interior design. Um, you know, architecture is a very large umbrella term, right? We can talk about you know site plans of universities and hospitals. Uh, you know, we can talk about city planning. We can talk about skyscrapers. But really, for Fee and I, I think it's really about the moment. You know, the way that a, pe a person or a group of people uses a space. Um, you know. The, what they do in that space and how they feel about that single space and experience when it's over. Um, this leads us to a much smaller scale of architecture, which tends towards interior design. Um, you know, in New York City, a lot of architects become interior interior designers given the, the density we have. Um, but it sort of really all works well for us. Some of the some of the training that we received, you know, sort of set us up on this path that we were on today, uh, in that it wasn't really um, it wasn't the most, the first thing that people think of when they think of architectural training. You know, it wasn't all structure. It wasn't all material. It wasn't all building code. A lot of it was like, how does a, how does a canoe get built by hand? You know, how do you structure a movie? Um, Fee says that it's, uh, they taught her how to learn in architecture school. Uh, my dean at the time posed it, uh, he described it as saying that uh, they were training students to develop questions not even telling them what questions to ask now because they were anticipating that as the world develops and you know new ideas appear you know we need to be able to craft our own questions for things that we can't even anticipate yet it's all very open ended um, which i think has a lasting you know uh, effect on the way that we operate as designers i do think you know like i think different between someone who didn't want to school when you do look at their stuff they are quite aesthetic driven rather than people who like you guys, right? Went to school, they are more problem solving driven that they're not really tied to one particular type of things because you know, you understand how to think, therefore you can solve different type of issue, even though that's not something you might never face before, right? And Fiona, I want to follow up something you just said about the way Avrico's approach to forming a concept and the way they form a concept it's sort of like way deeper and layered so could you go into more detail about that yeah so Abraco would look at a concept um as like, like basically the personality of the project and personalities are very layered so it, a lot of it will be based on something relevant so for example if there's an older building that is becoming um say a restaurant we'll look into the history of the building. Maybe it used to be like a, a factory or warehouse that made jeans, for example. And then we would look at, okay, what are all the machinery pieces and textures and little like details that come up when you look at um, like a hundred year old jean manufacturing plant. And there starts to be all these really fun references when you do um, historical image research. So maybe you'll find old photos of the interior of the building or old photos of what the block of the, like the city street used to look like or facades. And you can start to like pull interesting moments from that and then integrate it into the space. So yeah, the, the first layer might be historical and architectural. 
Um, and then there's often like a person, whether it's a real person or not, um, it could have been a historical figure and someone who is relevant in some way, or it could be sort of a made up person who potentially could have inhabited the space or may inhabit the new space. And um, you figure out how to draw some inspiration from that. So what are their interests? Um, what clothes do they wear? Like what era did they come from? And again, like just pulling a whole bunch of images from that kind of thing, you can find these really interesting um, details and, and that could become like a whole wall feature or it could become a little like button clip on a banquette pillow or something. Uh, and then the third layer is usually some sort of a detail and maybe it's directly tied to the historical concept, but maybe it's not, maybe it's um, something a little bit more abstract but something it's like a maybe a mechanical um instrument or some joinery and look at the way everything kind of interconnects and then like again like pull from that and start to design details around it so the idea is that when you're in the space you kind of get this sense of something that's like bigger than just what you see right away and once you learn what the concept is you're like oh i totally get it and you start to like pinpoint areas that directly relate to it. Oh, that's really interesting and very sort of like a useful method. It's not necessarily give you a solution to every project. Some project might fit in more, some might less, but like it's like a general guideline, make it easier for you to, even though you might not know what the outcome is. Right. It's Yeah, it's a really helpful framework. And it actually does help you, like if, if there's some something you're trying to figure out a design solution for, you just go back to the concept and you know, this is the solution that fits the concept and fits the big problem, then you know what to do. So it is really handy. And it's also so fun just to research and dig in and learn about all these interesting, you know, historical or character-driven um, things from the past or, or even the present. Yeah, I feel like the research part is like putting together a puzzle. And yeah. so you're always learning something new through the process, right? And, you know, Gregor, going back to you a little bit, so you did mention that you spent two years on just research what kind of architecture school you wanted to go. So what were you looking for and where did you end up going? Yeah, I mean, I think I decided uh, to go back to school for, for architecture uh, knowing that I had to satisfy some impulse that I was feeling, but I maybe couldn't fully describe. But it was, I think, that that need to apply um, curiosity and creativity towards something that you know leaves its mark on the world, other than just a painting that I would make. That was all about me, you know. Um, so I was very unfamiliar with um, you know the schools that were even in New York City, it's where I was living at the time. Um, I, you know, I, I, I had some sense of schools that I've no, known for other purposes or. or programs that I thought, oh, I'll go look at them. And then it turns out they wouldn't even have an architecture program. Um, so I quickly, very quickly realized that a lot of, a lot of schools are all about sort of the more um, engineering-based uh, interpretation of architecture. You know, just how do we build something? You know, like what's the, what's the size, material, things like that, the size of the, the elements. And that really didn't interest me very much. Um, but then I realized that a lot of schools are more about, you know, the why we build something. You know, like, uh, what are we building and why are we building it? 
You know, what, why are we designing something? And I think that, which to me is maybe a little less specialized, but I think a little bit more um, almost universal for human, for human beings, I think that's super interesting to me because now we're just talking about how everyday people live. You know, we're, we're studying how they live, why they live a certain way, and then we're, we're hypothesizing on how we can make that different, maybe better, maybe not so better, but different. Um, you know, and I think that, that kind of thing is very exciting to me. And I guess you can maybe say that's more about, um, I don't know, a, a design or conceptual education. Um, so I, st I started to separate all of those schools into two categories. And then I made a second list of places in the world I wanted to live. Um, and that sort of narrowed things down. Yeah, very quick. Yeah, so what showed up on both lists was where I started looking. Um, eventually, I didn't even leave town. Uh, I went to GSAP, uh, Columbia, here, here in New York. Um, and I think that that, you know, that was totally the right decision for me. Um, they question everything about the status quo. Uh, they, they, they teach us, you know, not to just accept things as like, well, this is the way that you build this space. So this is the way you design that space. Um, you know, to really say, you know, why, why is this built a certain way? Why is this space designed a certain way? And how can we make this better? Or how can we make this more effective? Or what, or even the question, you know, what's the metric that we drive this design by to measure its quality? Um, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, I don't know, it's, it's concerned with the big questions, I think. Uh, and that's exactly what I was interested in because I think once that was how you define architecture for me, then I could apply that to almost anything. So you kind of mentioned that, you know, architecture and interior design sort of like something we pass it down in the future, like sometimes even after, after us. And I do really curious, what do you, you guys think, um, what are the role that architecture and interior design plays in this world or sort of like we live in? And what are some of the responsibilities designer have or should have? I think really good interior design doesn't, people don't even notice that it's there. If it works really well and flows and, and everything is figured out, then you don't even notice it, which is kind of this counterintuitive idea. Um, as soon as something is very badly designed, people realize it right away. So it's almost like our job to become invisible in certain ways. This is more about like, you know, the structure of a building maybe, or just making sure everything works um, and is safe for people as well. It's kind of amazing how much time we have to spend making sure that spaces are safe and to code and all that really boring stuff. Um, but it does take up a lot of time. So I guess after, after all of that is figured out and people are given spaces that really work, we're just trying to make like people happy, you know, like when you walk into a room and you're, and you feel better that in that room than you were, you know, somewhere else, then that's sort of the goal, I guess. I think that, um, you know, the, the role that interior design or architecture play can, can be shifting. And I'm probably starting to sound like I'm repeating myself over and over that like every situation or project could be a little different. It has different, goals and aims um you know i think i think clearly defining those as the first metric to measure the success success by uh is important um absolutely you know we want to leave a space uh, a project you know better than we found it absolutely we want to satisfy the the client and owners and the public's you know needs um absolutely i also think that we need to think of the future 
and you know just the way that like that material that we've designated to to be built in a certain way at a certain space on the on the on the earth you know how that like lasts over time um you know i think i guess i'm talking about sustainability uh, and you know how long something should last you know in a, in a very rapid changing world uh we're very interested in design that doesn't isn't easily placed by by time or 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 era or style yeah we don't want to trends like it would be really easy to design spaces that just look trendy right now but we're very aware that in a couple of years it's going to look extremely dated um so it's easy to fall into the trap of oh everyone's doing this and it's really cool you need to be more creative than that and i think that you know subconsciously i'm sure that we do that to an extent right you know we'll we'll use a material or a form or a color because we've been seeing it a lot lately um but you know we're always really excited when we see something from like the 1920s or the 1880s that looked like it could have been made in like the 1970s. Um, I think that sort of, uh, you know, century to century or decade to decade kind of uh, quality of design, the aesthetics, you know, the, the use, um, the, the, just the, the build quality and material. Um, I think all those things are ways to measure like good design. And I think that all those things we just need more of in the world, you know, instead of mass produced, I think it's all about, you know, the, the, the quality. Um, yeah. And it's, we, we try to make things that are going to feel timeless in the future. Um, and like a, a very practical example of that would be if we're doing a residential project, we'd love to incorporate um, vintage or antique pieces because there's so much character in them. There's a story behind them. Um, they're completely unique in some cases, like, you know, no one else has that crazy looking credenza from the 20s or something. So, and that's also really fun because it's like treasure hunting. So we get to go and seek out these really interesting pieces um, and insert them into a space and you have this interesting juxtaposition between something maybe really modern or something really handmade and then this like hundred year old um, armoire that it's is full character and needs repair because the the hinges and the locks are so old they barely work anymore and they just it creates nice stories for the owners too because they might out who used to own the piece or where it came from and it just sort of layers on some real character yeah i think when you talk about you like to create design that's more timeless and i think that itself in a way is sustainable because then you don't, you're not just like, after a couple of years, you want to stripe it away and like do another, another completely different design. And that's like for every single couple of years or time, period of time. But I think creating timeless design that can last long, I think itself is also tied back to this idea of sustainability, right? Yes, definitely. And we sort of like talk a little bit about the design process already, but I do want to get into more in depth with what's your practice design process? Um, so we, the first thing we do is just try to get to know the client as much as possible. And if it's a residential project, we'll, um, meet their family, find out how they live in the space. We might even have dinner with them. So we understand how they use the kitchen and how that ties into the dining room or how much they entertain. Um, we'll ask them to send us inspiration that they've maybe picked up over the years. So things that really stand out to them that excites them. Um, if we're doing custom art for them, we'll learn about trips they've taken, like traveling they've done that 
are really warm memories for them and try to like, pull something out of that. So the, that's like the very first step before we even start the concept, like doing our own work, um, just sort of trying to like get into their heads a little bit. And then it's like a flurry of image research. Sometimes we'll go on field trips um, and we, we kind of throw at them like these fun ideas, like these stories we've developed based on what, what we've learned from them. And, and then there may be like two or three different directions that they get to pick from, um, which is fun for them because they, they get to like have a bit of a hand in the process, um, guiding us where to go. So once, once they've decided, you know, which, which direction to take, we'll kind of just build on it. Um, we'll look at other projects for inspiration. We may do, you know, kind of go around looking at, looking at architecture, um, lots of online research, um, lots of conversations, of course, with the clients throughout as well. Um, and trying to paint a picture of everything. Like so, sometimes you can show a client like a whole page of images and, and furniture and renderings and they still have trouble like picturing what it will be in the space. So you have to kind of walk them through it and maybe provide more, more renderings. Um, you know, fly through a model, that kind of thing. Just sort of get them into, that you have to reverse it and you get them into your headspace about what you're envisioning for everything. I think, yeah, we begin with, with conversations. And this isn't even about the space of the project necessarily. This is just sitting around, I, you know, I want to know what movies the owners like. You know, I want to know where they've been in the world. Uh, I just want to know more about them as people. Um, you know, and I think, through that, we're still studying what they're interested in. Um, you know, we might, it might drop in uh, to back to like the room we're sitting in if we're designing like a home and that's where we're sitting. Uh, but then it might go back to like just what they did on Tuesday, you know? Uh, so just a light conversation uh, where we're just constantly listening is really how we begin. And that might be dinner, that might not be. Um, I think one important thing that we work into every stage in our design is this idea of a pause. Um, where we just sort of like let, let the experience of talking to the, or the, the owner, let the conversation really sort of settle in, like to just our minds and the way that we're re responding to it. Um, that's the moment, you know, that first pause is after that first meeting. Uh, and then when we start to craft together some sort of conceptual directions. Uh, and that's always fun. That's always um, some sketching. That's always some image research. It's compiling a series of photographs that we share with them as fee uh described um it's crafting a narrative where like we start to label these different directions um you know like the, the what are some of them the sensitive anthropologist was like a, a character we made up for one project uh, where like they were interested in like, like you know going out into the world and like you know like, like bringing things back with them um you know after that phase it gets to the point that i really like which i kind of call like the tracing paper phase like where we just, now we might have the start of a direction. So Fee and I will just sit around just sketching really, really fast, you know, different spaces, um, different types of custom millwork or, you know, different ways to treat an entrance. Um, just starting to actually take these ideas and put them into the actual spaces that we're tasked with designing. Um, so we just really, really quickly sketch. Like, and from that, we pull out like a spatial direction um, so now we're starting to talk about, you know, the owner, 
we're starting to talk about the, the look and feel and purpose of the space. Uh, we're starting to talk about how we're actually approaching and treating specific moments in their space. Um, so everything's becoming a little bit more refined, step, step by step. Uh, after that phase was when we start to go into like more measured drawing, um, you know, a rhino model, uh, CAD drawings, uh, taking dimensions and seeing if some of these ideas actually will work. And I do find that very interesting that you guys actually stay and hang out with the client and yeah. to like sort of like learn their lifestyle and how they live the space. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, we get to learn how, how they learn or how they live. But it's also nice for everyone to put their guard down a little bit. And, and then you just get into like more an easy conversation. Um, and no one's like trying too hard and thinking too hard. And that's when you really get to know the people and um, when other stories come out or they may even point out like something in their home or in a restaurant or something that they either really like or really don't like or that doesn't work. And the conversation just flows a little bit more easily. That barrier between client and designer it breaks down a little bit, which is also really helpful just throughout the project um, because you become closer tied with them and it's, it's, it's like inevitably there's going to be a lot of problems and issues that come up with construction and the better relationship you have with the client, the easier it is for everyone to just like move forward as a unified front and figure things out. Whereas if it's, yeah, if we're really divided as these two entities, um, yeah. we can just become more cumbersome. Ultimately, we all need to trust one another. Right, like Fee and I need to trust each other as partners in design. Um, you know, to know that the other one is, you know, working with a certain intention that the other one understands. Uh, the clients need to absolutely trust us. You know, for for not only you know leading the design in a certain way, but also yeah, if a, if a problem comes up in construction, they need to know that we are totally about um, you know getting it solved. Right. Um, so I think to build that, we just spend time with them and we just talk to them as people. Does the process difference between a residential project and the hospitality project? Because for hospitality, right, like you don't really know exactly who and how they will use the space. And so how is that difference when you are doing sort of like a hospitality project? The residential projects tend to be a little bit more personal. Um, Clients will get down nitty gritty and make, you know, very informed decisions about the smallest thing like, you know, cabinet pull um, or, you know, the, the, the final color between these very two similar things um, because they're going to live in it and see it every day. Whereas the hospitality projects, they, the decisions the client makes tend to be based a little bit more on the business, less right. about their own personal preference. So they think, okay, if this is going to work with the budget for construction and it's going to be durable and um, the customers will love it, then that's usually the decision they go with. They don't do something based on um, like their gut or their heart. Like, right. oh, like their personal preference. Yeah, yeah. 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 In a way that like, you know, we say that um, we want to work with, understand and satisfy the owners and clients that come to us. You know, a restaurant owner is doing that same thing to, to the people that come in his or her front door to dine, you know. They want to understand their public. Uh, they want to satisfy 
their public. They want their, their public to go away, you know, loving the experience. Um, so we talk to those owners and, you know, we, we, we try to understand what they understand about their space and how they want to run it. But, you know, in the end, we're always trying to say like, what, you know, what does the public want? I mean, that could be very scary because it's like, there's nobody that can answer, but it can also be very exciting because we get to sort of hypothesize about the experience. Yeah, I think that's also part of fun to be an interior designer or architect, right? Just to be able to work on different kind of projects and figuring out sort of like all kinds of challenges. And I know that your practice is called handwork art and design and fabricating custom art is an essential part of sort of like what you guys do. So could you tell us a little more about How's that process like, and why do you guys want to expand the firm into custom art? Um, the art was actually one of the first elements of, of handwork. Um, yeah, so it just happened that the, some of the people we knew um, within the design community and former clients had some art installations they needed done and knew that we were capable of it. So they were like, hey, you know, you want to build this? this thing for us. And we said, sure, um, that would be really fun. And so it sort of started off at that much smaller scale and then very quickly grew into um, residential design, staging, and then hospitality and the, the jobs just getting, kept getting bigger. Um, so that, that art installation has been a core part of the business from the very beginning. And it's also one of the, the more creative and challenging and um, varied aspects of handwork because it's if if every design project is is different then every art feature project is completely different we may be sourcing um old wooden boats online and adjusting them and painting them or we might be um you know aging some old painting and covering it in fabric or what like whatever you can imagine we'll come up with and then build it and install it and it's it's really fun it's um it's very different too i don't we don't know a lot of people that do that kind of work no there's, there's not many i mean that that is really what gave us the 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 start uh for this for this practice um it's almost like the our clients then were just other designers uh you know they would have a space and you know they were making a restaurant or something um uh, and they would just be like, you know, we need we need a focal point. We need an art installation for this wall, but it needs to satisfy these few requirements. So, in a way, we say that it's like art made by architects. We have a site. Uh, we ha we come up with a concept before we have the the art finished. Um, you know, we will have a budget, a deadline, uh, and we'll start to sketch it out before we put any you know material or two objects together in any way. Um, you know, it's all very designed art uh in a way um and yeah it's super varied i mean like just this year we've like been dealing in, in like old axes um you know strips of leather uh the, the the model boats um you know we've done things like like burn things we've had to we've had to, we've had to char things we've had to pour like resin into molds um this is you know to for for two people for two designers that that value variety and something different every day, you know, this offers a lot of variety. Uh, it's, there's always unknowns that we just need to sort through. And you know, that makes it fun, the unknown. 
Yeah, definitely. So you know, speaking of, what are some of the exciting and fun projects you two are currently working on? Um, let's see. We have a food market stall um, in Moynihan Station. We're working on. There's、um, an ice cream shop that's just opened. There's、um, a couple like kind of standard apartments, like residential design projects in Manhattan.、Um, there's a, a large job in LA we've been working on for a while, and、um, it's a house in Bel Air. The main house is pretty much done, but we're working on an in-home spa and then a ground-up new pool house,、um, as well as landscaping. So, and that's some, something else we've never really tackled before.、Um, yeah, that project is, is exciting because we've never done landscape design before, and we started this project speaking with him, where it was all understood.、Uh, he and Fiona and I were like, "Okay, we're going. When it comes time, we're going to hire a landscape designer、um, because we've never done this."、Um, and then, after talking to several of them, and then talking to the owner continually. The three of us were just like, well, why don't we just, don't we just do it ourselves? We'll just classic handwork. We'll just figure it out. We'll learn by doing. And you know, because we have this trust, and he's actually a repeat client for us. We designed his home in Manhattan.、Um, uh, because he trusts us and knows that, like, you know, we're sincerely working towards like his best interest. He's okay with this. We're just gonna like figure it out on the fly.、Uh, he knows we've never designed, you know, a landscape. He knows that we're totally into it and want to get it done right. And the the same goes for the pool house.、Um, this is our first ground up architecture project,、mm-hmm. so that's pretty exciting as well. And again, he trusts us,、um, and we're working with、uh, a local architect out there to helping us with you know permitting all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's just kind of a big undertaking. Yeah, that's so exciting that you know you guys are working on so many different type of projects. So moving forward, where do you guys see the practice going, and you know how do you like the practice to grow in the future? Yeah, it's a great question.、Um, I feel like we're busy so much of the time that we don't even have a moment to sit down and and plan that kind of thing. And、um, we do have two designers on staff, so it's the two of us. We run things, but we also have a small team.、Um, And yeah, you know, we we're happy with the way things have been going. We've been slowly building up. We started off with one designer, now we have two. And I think if we were to grow a little bit more, that would be great. And I think doing more、um, ground up architecture could be fun because that's one thing that's newer.、Mm-hmm. And everything else we've done, you know, a fair amount of it, and that's great. But I think、um, that new challenge would be very exciting.、Um, I don't think we really have any plans to become like. You know, a multi-city, massive firm. That's just that just seems like out of. It seems stressful, and we would get to spend less details on, you know, things like designing custom hardware and more. It would be a lot of just administrative. That yeah, that would detach us, I think, from the the hands-on day-to-day design that we we enjoy.、Um, so in a way, like you know, we we prefer to stay small. You know. Um, maybe there's a certain survivability in terms of economic,、uh, you know, hard times in that regard.、Um, a lot of our clients are repeat clients,、um, and I, and we talk about that rather a lot.、Um, and I think that's that's because of we believe、uh, the fact that we we aim to please them, you know, like from day one.、Um, you know, it's just good business. You know, we're just just working with people and and making them happy.、Um, 
So, you know, we might talk about getting a little bit larger. You know, we could use a few more projects uh, just to, just to, you know, have that excitement and satisfy those curiosities. But I think at some point we would just say like, you know, we're at capacity and, and that's it. And we don't want to go any larger. Yeah, we want to be able to give the attention to each project that it deserves. Yeah, you know, and speaking of uh, business aspect, how is it like to work as a husband and wife design team? What are some of the pros and cons? <laughs> yeah, we've been doing this for so long, I forget what it's like to just have regular colleagues. <laughs> um, it's, it's good. Like, I think the pros outweigh the cons. Um, it's not even so much like pro and con. It's, to me, it's more like life has become this sort of blurred. It's like everything gets blurred between private um, home life and work life. We also work from home. So it's just, you know, we might be watching a film and something will inspire us and we'll stop and we'll talk about that. Or, you know, making dinner and we'll talk about um, some place we want to go, maybe like an architectural um, site somewhere on the weekend. So like that aspect of our life bleeds into, like work bleeds into our real life, but it's fine because we love what we do. So it's not an issue. Um, and then the same goes the other way around. We may decide to take a Thursday afternoon off and just hang out with our baby and, you know, go to a winery or something. We have different strengths that we understand so well with each other and the way that we approach a project and the way we think about um, design are quite different. So it's, it's like a good compatibility. Yeah, we, we absolutely both bring different skills, sensibilities and experiences, you know, to, to the practice. Um, you know, we have different ways of working. We have different areas of interest or focus. Um, but what really unifies us is that aesthetically and in terms of like, big top-down kind of design beliefs. We tend to agree on, on most everything. Um, it's just a matter, matter of navigating to those points of agreement that are a little different. Um, but they're not even at odds. They're, they're, they're just sort of different ways uh, of, of executing things. Fiona is much more knowledgeable of uh, different practices, um, different individuals in the, like, the professional design uh, sphere. Um, you know, she's very, very skilled at just um, you know how to how to practice design as a business. She's had like this is like her third design business, plus other industries of businesses she's had. Um, and I'm very much all about like just how things fit together, how they are constructed. You know, like how a detail is designed. You know, how a material is joined. Um, so we have these different skill sets that that work well with each other. Uh, and it's usually always towards the same desired uh, design goal. Um, I think that's super important to have in any relationship, working working relationship, whether it blurs into the personal or not. Um, you know, that is one good thing, as Fiona said. If we do get into a disagreement, you know, we always have our marriage to to call back on and to say, like, you know, ultimately we need to solve this, right? Ultimately, we are going to solve this, like right here and now. And if we know that, then it makes everything easier. Um, related to that, you know, I fully know and trust that Fiona is always doing things to her best ability and knows what she's doing. And that makes, you know, that makes me very mentally and emotionally uh, comfortable. So I don't even need to worry about that. I can just say like, okay, how are we going to get, you know, I don't know, this thing built by two weeks from now. 
uh, I don't need to worry about sort of the interpersonal relationships if I totally trust her. I can concentrate more on just getting the design figured out, you know, getting the fabrication done. Uh, and that's, I think, super powerful. We do, we do almost always agree on aesthetic decisions or style or whatever. So that's huge. If, if we had a different viewpoint on just what design should be, then it would be really challenging. I, I think we also, like, our, our education and experience also bring, um, bring things to the other, if that makes sense. Like, my idea of design spaces that I liked hasn't changed since I met Fiona, but it's, it's been enriched in a lot of ways. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm looking at things and thinking of materials and I know places and, and spaces that I never would have known, uh, you know, if I've never met or talked to or worked with Fiona. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, a, it's, it's this like, it's a feedback loop that's like building up and getting bigger and better. Uh, I don't know what that analogy is, not a loop, but um, you know, it totally, I think works for us. Sounds like you guys work really well together and it's a great team. So I do also curious, what are some of the challenges in operating so like a boutique design firm? You know, other people might not know or what advice or what would you tell them to pay attention to or this is something you probably don't know? Hmm. Well, you have to be not only a designer but a business person. So if you're not able to multitask and handle a million things all at once um, and you know project manage quite a bit if you can't do that while also knowing you know just how to bill for a job um, it's all these nitty-gritty things that are really challenging and and you might screw up a few times before you learn how to make it work how the balance is to to make it like a viable business because it's not you're not just designer anymore you when you work for a firm you go into the office you work on a project that you're told to um, mm -hmm. you design it <laughs> to the best of your ability and then you go home but when you have your own practice you're constantly you know you're handling client relations um, you're responsible for finding the right contractor um, managing every aspect of like design and construction even if you have people working for you you still have to keep track of all of that stuff so like I said it's just a lot of multitasking um, and then down to the last minute, like you have to make sure everyone on the team is working together, um, the design team, the construction team, ensure the client is always in the loop about things. So it's just a lot of stuff, a lot of spinning plates you have to keep spinning. Um, so yeah, the, that's what I would, the main thing I would say is if you're good at managing a lot all at once, and if you're pretty decent at understanding business, um, and time management, all this stuff, it's way less glamorous than you'd think. Like, it sounds very glamorous having a boutique design firm, but it's right. a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And was it easy for you to, to get projects? That's something, if I think about it, I was like, oh, that's something very scary. Like, what, where's the next project? Is there something comes easy at first or you need time? Yeah, that's one of the responsibilities of running a small office. You know, they, there's no, there's no uh, client, uh, uh, you know, team that like just goes out and looks for new work. Like we we still have to do that. Um, in our case, it built um, it built from like two two clients, two projects, uh, a design firm that needed us to make art objects, and uh, a restaurant owner that 
Fiona happened to know that needed us or needed somebody um, to uh, style one of his houses. Um, and you know, we, about a year or two ago, we started to look into advertising and what that means. Uh, and we started to um, actually pay for some advertising over different platforms. But then we realized that 100% um, of our projects have always been, you know, like word of mouth. You know, we, we work with, some, with one client and they, they're satisfied. And then all of a sudden they talk to somebody else that happens to mention to them that they need a designer. So then they put us in touch with that third person. Um, and this is, this is just how it grows. You know, um, there's, it turns out that a lot of our clients tend to know each other. Uh, because of you know how we've met them as clients, um, it is good to have a practice that is as varied as ours because we we can handle so many different types of projects. Um, that comes back to the anti-specialist thing, but yeah, in terms of like advice, I would give if you're a designer working for a firm and you want to have your own practice someday, um, obviously network as much as possible and get to know a lot of people, but. Get to know your clients as well, like the clients that you have while you're working for other people. Um, get to know them as much as possible, even contractors, um, anyone else involved in the project. Like, just try to be a very responsible, experienced designer, but get to know people um, and keep in touch with, with everyone as much as you can. And then if you do go out on your own, just let everyone know because sometimes. People just don't know you have your own gig going. So it seems simple, but I think that's how we got one of our art feature projects. I just emailed one of our former clients and said, we're doing this. Uh, let me know if you need anything. And it worked. Wow. I think that's something people don't do enough. So it's just like a reach out, right? And like keep your connection going and with the people you know and constantly reaching out to, to new ones. And I do know that this design practice is not the only thing you guys do on a day-to-day -day basis. I know, Greg, you were my foundation year studio professor at Pratt, and then you've been teaching at Pratt for five years now. And what makes you want to involve in teaching? And what were your approach to you know, teaching the next generation of designers? Yeah, I mean, part of... Um Part of the satisfaction of teaching every day uh, is the fact that I just get to meet new people and they have their own experiences, they have their own interests. Um, you know, that, that rich diversity of ideas makes it exciting. And, and I've, I hope I told this to your studio because I try to tell it to every studio, but like, it's also a learning experience for me, you know? Um, I see new precedents that, that students bring in I get to know people from around the world, uh, understand just a little bit of, you know, wherever they come from, like how they bring that to New York and share that with the studio. Um, you know, all of this in a way factors back into just my development as a designer. Um, I also just happen to, you know, like talking about design and helping people develop a design and, you know, seeing what it can become. So there's, certain, there's a certain amount of like, um, I don't know, like a, like a pride in the profession that I want to, to foster, uh, not just in myself, but in, in every student. You know, this is, this is a profession that is rather small, you know? I don't know how many architects and interior designers there are in the United States or in the world, but it's, it's not a large number compared to other professions. And we tend to get to know a lot of other friends and colleagues because of this profession. 
Um, so I like to foster that kind of like cross professional networking sort of quality a lot. Um, as for the design philosophy, I mean, I, I, I tell them all, you know, wherever you're from, whatever you've done before this, because it's a grad program. So there's a lot of, there's a lot right. of students that might've had other careers. Um, you know, absolutely. Whatever you learned there is absolutely valid here. You know, whether you're, uh, you know, something that you think is very different, you know, an accountant, you know, that person still knows how to, you know, manage numbers and talk to people and interpret, you know, laws and code. All these things are super valuable to a designer and the in, with the interest of actually getting things built, you know? Um, so everybody has strengths to call on. And uh, I think that's a great starting point for them as, as students of design. And I just try to extend that uh, larger. I just say, you know, everything's valid here. You know, this weekend, go take a walk to a neighborhood you've never been before. You know, go watch a movie you've never seen before. You know, just extend that, that body of experience and, and, and understanding as large as you can get it. And then bring all that back to design and embed that in the thinking that's driving the design. I think that's very interesting that you mentioned about like, you know, it's a way you want to learn from the student. And you definitely mentioned that in my session. And you know, like I remember like our year, like the student is very international. If you think about it, right, like what other opportunity you can talking with a group of international people to know what they think and how they approach design. I think that's like, I guess it's a way for people to learn different culture through that experience. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that the way that design is heading, you know, not just design, but many industries, um, you know, we're maybe not in 2020 with COVID, but, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a world that's increasingly getting smaller, you know, like right. you can fly to the opposite end of the world in a matter of hours, you know, um, all these points of, of connectivity, they bring a lot of great things, you know, this exposure to other ideas and people and, and places and materials and history, but it also kind of can overlook all the, those little tiny uh, localities and, you know, little mini cultures of not even like a whole country, but like a neighborhood and a city that might have its own culture. You know, those kind of little, little points of interest, you know, are at risk, I feel like. Um, with this connectivity. So I think that driving, driving uh, the individual designer to call on what they know and where they're from is a way to keep those alive a little bit more. Yeah, that's something I definitely never thought about it. And that's great that you mentioned it and I think in this way. And Fiona, go back to you a little bit. And Gregor also mentioned earlier that you, this is not the only company you founded. You also co-founded a software program and could you tell us a little more about the firm and what does the software do and who are the current users? Just tell us a little bit more about it. Um, yeah, when I moved to New York, I worked for a few hospitality design firms um, and each one had its own method of um, documenting specs for a project. Um, one of them was like this cobbled together Microsoft Access software that was really buggy. Um, the next one, used this dated, like not cloud-based software from the 90s that hadn't been updated Gosh. in a long time. And um, it was very hard to use, very hard to learn, wasted a lot of time. Um, and then I, the other one, it was basically Excel and InDesign, which is surprisingly very common. A lot of even like mid-range um, design firms still use Excel to write their specifications. 
So, you know, all of this is, it's such a drain on your time and energy and designers are incredibly busy, um, often get stressed out, you know, from the millions of things we're trying to handle in a project. And on top of that, you're trying to use either dated or buggy software to record everything. And a lot of mistakes happen because you might have to input the same information in multiple places. And then if you change a spec, you forget to update it somewhere manually, then you've got mistakes that get sent out to the contractor and you're responsible for that. Right. So it was just a total mess. And I was trying to figure out why the hospitality industry especially didn't have some better um, tools. So I mentioned this to my brother, who's um, a software developer and also had really wanted to start his own business for a long time. Um, I showed him some screenshots of this software and I basically couldn't stop him after that. He, he said, okay, we're going to design something better. And I said, that would be great. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Um, so many years later, um, it's, yeah, it's called design spec. It's cloud-based um, specification software for designers. So it could be for a, an independent single designer doing small projects, or we have some really large uh, multi-city firms that are using it for hotels. Oh wow! So yeah, it's it's um it's got a great breadth to it, and we designed it to be as easy to use and easy to learn as humanly possible. So people love it. Um, it's been it's been a great addition to the industry. Um, it's also really customizable because we realized that pretty much every firm has a different way of standardizing their specs. So whether it's the spec type or the codes they use or how they link everything together. Um, so we, we made it easy for designers to go in themselves and make all these adjustments. And then from then on, all the projects are all going to like fall in line. Um, so it's, it's been pretty exciting to get feedback from some of these really big firms. Um, we've, we've signed on Meyer Davis, um, Looney Associates, Home Studios in New York, Parts and Labor. Wow. Parts and Labor has been using it since the beginning. They helped us beta test it. Um, so yeah, there's some, there's some pretty good names out there in the industry who are, who swear by it. And it's similar to handwork. It's been a lot of word of mouth because there's a high turnover rate with designers. They'll, they'll move to a new firm after a couple of years and then they bring with them the software and the, the tools they have from the previous firm. So, um, it's been, it's been a great learning experience. We're still adding new features all the time and we've got, firms leaving, there's, there's a couple other platforms out there that are newer um, spec writing platforms, but they're a lot more complicated um, to set up and to, to learn. So we've had um, a few big firms recently join us um, after moving over from like another modern platform. The, the hope and the goal is to someday be the industry standard for writing specs um, for your projects. And we're also growing sort of like expanding the business model. So um, we have plans to build a vendor product library so you can source items directly in the software. Yeah, we've already been in talks with some um, pretty big vendors, suppliers who are interested in hosting their products. So that would be great because so much time is spent, you know, browsing the internet, trying to find, you might find the perfect product and then discover later that it's not contract grade. So we'll have filters where you can just tick off a box that said, show me everything that's contract grade and within this budget and this style. And you can start to narrow down all the things you've been looking at. Um, and then you just add it to your project automatically. And 
you'll be notified if you know it's if it's no longer in stock or whatever it just takes a lot of the manual work and a lot of inbox management out of the hands of a designer and just sort of handles it for you yeah honestly this sounds so much better than the spec program i'm currently using and i think spec writing is such a sort of like an industry issue personally speaking and you know i'd love to test it out design spec on some future projects and you know before we go into the quick question section i want to ask every guest the same question in the end about their lucky lucky break so looking back, were there moments or factors in your life that helped you to be at where you are right now that's due to luck? I mean, I think the fact that uh, Fiona and I met each other uh, is super formative. Uh, you know, I, it's not like I was looking to marry or work with my wife as, as an architect or designer, but it just happened. So a lot of things fell into place after that. Before that moment, there was there was lots of hundreds of other moments that led Fiona to come to New York City, you know, and there was hundreds of moments that led me to be in New York City and also studying design. And then, you know, one day we met each other and, you know, it's sort of just taken off from there. Right. It just so happens that we we work well together. I can think of I, I knew another uh, married couple architects that didn't work together because they don't. They, they, they told me that. They just have totally different methods, totally different aesthetics and beliefs. It just wouldn't work. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's probably the one major, major one for sure. Yeah, we're, we kind of, there's definitely been a lot of moments that are like, oh, that was fortunate, but we, we work hard to make our own luck. So reaching out to people all the time and keeping in touch with, with people, and that's what gives you opportunities. Um, so the, the person that introduced me to, to Avroco, um, when I was still living in Winnipeg, was like a furniture fabricator I knew, and I told him I was going to New York and wanted to take a tour of a proper design firm. I'd never been in a, a huge firm like that before. He said, "Oh, I know just the one. I'll hook you up." Um, so that was pretty fortunate. But in order to get to that point, you have to make a decision that I, you know, I want to ask around and see if anyone knows anyone that that I could meet. Um, so. It's it's a little bit of that, sort of making your own fortune. I think that making your own luck is a good way to put it. And I think for a small practice, um, a small husband and wife practice, uh, that's important because um, you know there's a there's a a big blurred line between personal and professional, and professional daytime and you know personal nighttime is also blurred. Like. We're kind of, you know, for better or worse, we're kind of always working, um, you know, Sunday night, you know, or Saturday afternoon, all of a sudden one of us remembers something and all of a sudden we start, we're talking about work, you know, immediately. Um, and that's just the nature of a, of a small practice, uh, you know, a small uh, married practice. Um, we're always working. It's always on. We are okay with this in the moment, um, but a lot of that is coming down to making our own luck. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to put it. Uh, you know, the moment when they, the luck comes, it's like lucky, the moments are lucky, but you know, all those effort, time leading to that moment, it's like, you know, based on something you personally need to invest it in and manifesting that the eventual lucky moment to happen, right? And you know, I always interested to know what other designers love. So some quick questions in the end of this episode. 
The first one is, who are your favorite interior designer or architect? Um, my favorite interior designer right now is Kelly Wurstler. I think what she's doing is really exciting and bold. And even though like some of her work is over the top and something I probably would never uh, attempt, she's definitely um, pushing the boundaries and her aesthetic has changed a lot over the last 10 years. Um, so she's, she's a favorite of mine. I still love um, some of the old New York classics. I still love Abraco, um, Roman and Williams. Um, Home Studios is amazing. There's a lot of Australian firms that are just like, I think the best in the world. Um, architecture, Carlos Scarpa has been my favorite for a long time. It's gonna be hard to bump him off the list. Yeah, for me, I mean, there's there's like there's just so many. Um, I still love like uh, the old classic architects of the 20th century: Mies, uh, Saarinen, uh, Lucan. Uh, Scarpa is probably our number one most cited uh, designer. I mean, for almost every project, we're looking at Carlos Scarpa images, um, Charles and Ray Eames. Uh, some more recent designers and architects that I, I love. Um, Fiona mentioned home studios, uh, Sana, uh, Zumthor. Um, I love Demore Studio. Uh, you know, looking at, at their interiors, I'm always like holding up that up to like images of our own work, saying like, you know, what if we try this next time? Um, Tony Duquette, uh, Dieter Rams. Um, we look at a lot of art, uh, artists too, um, for sure. Uh, Maya Lin, you know, she occupies this, this realm between art and design that you know, we love. Um, Vito Acanchi, Louise Nevelson, Louise Bourgeois, uh, Marina Abramovich, Sophie Kelly, conceptual artists that I think are very subconsciously formative for me. Um, we also just look at a lot of the work uh, of our friends and colleagues. Um, you know, Abroco, OPA, uh, Parts and Labor, um, you know, mm -hmm. things like people like that. There's a lot of talent out there. Yeah, this is very informative. Uh, so what books had an influence on sort of like your design philosophy? For me, Best Ugly was a really good one. Um, otherwise, I feel like a lot of my time has been spent looking at design magazines more than books. I think because they are constantly updated and they have a big range, like they might have interiors, furniture design, um, artists. So. Yeah, over the years, like even when I was still in high school, actually, I've I've been looking at design magazines, um, AD Interior Design Magazine, um, Hospitality, and like some random ones. Like I'll just kind of go into a bookstore and inevitably float to the magazine section. I'll just pick out like a one-off design magazine I've never heard of before. I used to love wallpaper, so yeah, over, I've I've always been kind of obsessed with with those kind of publications? I don't, I, I don't have a single design book, I don't think. Um, I can think of a few that were formative at certain points in my life. Uh, Ways of Seeing by John Berger. I mean, the basics, in a way. Delirious New York by Ren. Um, I do read a lot of like, what I would call like literary journalism. Uh, like my favorite author is John McPhee, and he just, I think it's a great influence on our design philosophy because he's just a curious writer that like every 18 months turns out another book on some unknown topic you didn't really see coming. 
uh, and just goes very deep on, on the whole economy and industry and history of whatever that topic is. Um, so things like that. So along those lines, a lot of the magazines that support that, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, Harper's, you know, those are, those are places that we read a lot of variety. Uh, lately I've been reading a lot of the food writing uh, by Jim Harrison, who also writes poems and novellas, but it's the, 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 the way of life uh, experiencing food. Uh, I don't know, I just see a lot of similarities to that and, you know, like what design can do for a person. You know, it's all about that moment. Uh, it's all about harnessing the senses and directing them through something, food or space. Mm -hmm. And so what are some of the materials you like to work with? I really like working with stone. Um, it, going to a stone yard is so fun. Every slab is completely different. I personally think that a lot of um, these these huge stone slabs could just be a piece of art in and of themselves just on the wall to kind of gawk at how beautiful um, nature can be. So different colors, veining, different types of stone, a lot of different applications too. You can use it for, for walls, for floors, for counter surfaces, um, pretty much anything you can imagine. So yeah, I love stone, very colorful very graphic um, and then wood as well is wood is nice because it's really flexible in terms of what you can use it for um, it's inexpensive it gets a great patina after a while so it's okay if wood gets dinged up um, and also it's really easy to like manipulate wood not only the shape but the finish and the color and the texture it's it's almost like you can mold it into whatever you need it to be and then it, it sort of takes on a life of its own. It's, as it ages, it still has its own life and character. It's like holding a piece of, of something made of wood from a hundred years ago is, it can be like almost a religious experience or, or many hundreds of years ago. Um, you can see how the corners get worn off from people touching it and the, the graining and all different ways you can cut it. I would love to get to know a larger variety of species of wood. Uh, in terms of the grain structure, the color, uh, hardness, strength, things like that. Uh, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm late to the game. I've been trying to look at those things recently so that we start to use them in more, more projects, you know. I think that one, one material that we actually use a lot, but maybe don't, don't celebrate, but we just use it in every single project, is just plain old steel. Um, we, we work with a, a very good metal shop for a lot of our projects. And, um, you know, they, they've made things for us out of brass, um, brushed, polished, mirror polished, uh, out of aluminum. Um, but in almost every project, we have something, some moment, a table, shelving, um, you know, some, a light fixture, something that has steel components. And um, I feel like uh, we've gotten a good education in how steel wants to behave and what it can do over the past few years. Uh, and now just very easily start to sketch and design with that in mind. You know, we know like we know what it's capable of. So we'll we'll very quickly start to draw things that we know can be made out of steel. Um, yeah, steel saves the day a lot of the time because it's so it's so thin and strong. Yeah, it's forgiving. Yeah, I mean, if you have the equipment, it's it's if you know what you're doing. Yeah, it's nice it, if there's some um, problem to be solved and space or whatever is an issue or strength 
then steel will come along and we'll figure it out that way. It can also look like many different things. You know, we can we can polish it and keep it like stainless and silver. Um, we can powder coat it any color we want, shiny, glossy, or matte. Um, we can blacken it. Um, you can, if you want, you can you can see like you know like the hand of the the fabricator on it. You know, we can keep it rough and raw, or we can polish it and and, and have it a little more refined. Um, you can let it rust. Yeah. And it can become like a corten. Yeah. Um, do you guys have a favorite hotel? And it could be specific or, you know, a brand. Um, the proper hotel in Santa Monica is absolutely gorgeous. It's a Kelly Whistler um, project. Um, Greg and I were in Tulum a few years ago, and uh, there's been some, like, hotels that have come up there recently that are a little more like designed um the jungle cabo comes to mind but even when we were there and it was a few years ago it was still it wasn't as popular a destination um there were so many beautiful little spots that have been sort of handmade cobbled together very much like little paradise hut um those were very very cute i don't even know the names of them but for me, when we travel, this was a hard question because when we travel, we tend to stay in Airbnbs. Um, but, uh, you know, the first thing that came to mind is uh, every time we're in Los Angeles, we'll, we'll go to Chateau Marmont um, just for food and drinks, something like that. Um, you know, I don't even know when it was designed, but not, not recently. Um, the next thing that came to mind were just like uh, here around New York, just like a lot of classic old uh, inns. Uh, Hasbrook House comes to mind. Um, I think they renovated it a few years ago. Um, it's it's kind of like a little outpost of Brooklyn up in the Catskills. Uh, Foxfire Inn, also in the Catskills, comes to mind. The, the large Grand Awani in Yosemite. Uh, you know, that's, I can remember, very specifically remember spending a few hours there after hiking all day. Uh, so that's important in my mind. Love it. And last question. So how do you two decompress? I feel like I don't decompress. <laughs> like I'm always on or thinking. Um, but on, I guess weekends and evenings, we definitely try to get out and explore. Like we love to find a cute little town and wander around. Um, at night at home, we just kind of cuddle up with the dogs and the baby and maybe we'll make some mulled wine watch like a comedy series for the third or fourth time in a row. Yeah. <laughs> we pick the ones we like and watch them over and over. I think it's really important to get outside. Um, we'll do, we'll, we'll hike when we can, which is not enough. Um, but even just, it doesn't even need to be anything grand, you know, like just getting outside and just like feeling the cold on your face. Um, you know, just hearing like the forest more than like the road. Uh, is really important. Um, we also cook. Yeah, cooking is my next thing. Cooking and eating, uh, not just the cooking, but the eating, <laughs> is you know something we do like every day, and you know is super important. Um, you know, I'm sure somehow factors back into our design practice because it's all about the experience and the quality of the the moment. Um, so that's that's both of those things are super important to us. I also think that uh, like a a simple luxury is just like spending time reading. Uh, I'm not talking about the news. Um, and I'm not talking about doom scrolling. 
Um, but like, just like a book that maybe you've read already, or you know, maybe it's a favorite author, or maybe it's brand new. Just having a, a couple hours to read is like so rare or hard to have. Therapeutic. Yeah, but it's like such a great moment of just like turning everything else off. Yeah, that's so true. And well, this was so much fun to catch up with you guys, and I can't thank both of you enough to you know taking the time and speaking with me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you. Well, yeah, thank it's you. been it's been really fun. We're looking forward to this. Yeah, I think that your questions and this uh, this whole passion project of yours is great because it's it's sort of turned a mirror on us, you know, to look at some of these some of these you know inquiries and just say like, what is you know, what do we really think here? You know, we've maybe suspected something for years or felt something, uh, but never actually given it like definition or structure. Um, so it's a good little moment of self reflection. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Red Angle Podcast. If you like this episode, subscribe and review us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can stay connected with us through Instagram at the Red Angle Podcast, or reach out to me personally at Elo Design. I linked everything about my guests in the show notes, so please go check it out. Thanks again for listening, and see you guys next Wednesday.